went to Vegas? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> How was, was that your first like real trip before? It was. Yes. Oh my goodness. For our oh first goodness. time on a plane, everything yeah. like it was. It was so awesome. Mm. Did you? Did you? <laughs> so wait, I know you were. I know you were masking. Did you? Did you end up getting the vaccine? No. Okay, so you just decided to mask and just protect yourself. Yeah. Got it. So <laughs> and, I, did, and I also saw my brand. So it was like a dual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you feel? Did you feel a little cla- like? Uh, were you a little paranoid or were you a little scared being in the plane and all that? You know what? I I was more. I wasn't scared like as far as like the virus or anything. Mm-hmm. I was scared that first takeoff because I'd never did the whole plane thing before, and mm-hmm. then it was. Like we were two and a half hours delayed because of maintenance issues, so that didn't help. Mm, yeah. And then some guy got arrested because he was carrying so much money. Like it was so every the flight attendant said, "You should be fine from here on out because everything that could have went wrong <laughs> went wrong on your first flight." And I said, "You know what? I like that perspective." And <laughs> I still cried when the plane took off. I still right. cried. Oh my God! But outside of that, all the rest of the flights and even the return flight home, like everything went like gravy. But that first, like leaving our our airport here is called CBG. Mm-hmm. Leaving CBG, we bloated or what is it called? Boarded. We boarded at eight thirty a.m. We didn't pull off until about ten thirty, ten forty-five. We missed our connecting flight, so that put us like it was just it was so traumatic. It literally took all day to get from Ohio to nevada and it was only supposed to take i think like four hours maybe four or four oh, and a half hours. yeah so it was a traumatic <laughs> experience but i had vegas made up for it well, that's vegas good. Made up for it. um coming back home we took a flight overnight so i got to sleep and when we woke up and got back to cincinnati it was daytime the birds were just now coming out so it was it was really cool i'm ready to go back huh well yeah <laughs> i don't even know and you're you're in the you're in the east coast right so we're we're Midwest, but we do go by yeah Eastern Standard Time yeah. So I'm like okay. right in the middle of like um. So our tri-state area is Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. That's our tri-state area. And why further, I, the true East Coast is like New York, Jersey, Rhode Island, yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Why did I think you were in Houston? Nope, never been there. That's on my list. Of, never oh, been to funny. Texas. Never been to Houston. Nope. <laughs> Got it. Okay. That, Cincinnati, now, Ohio. Like, yeah, because I was like, I thought you, for some reason, I thought you were in Houston. And then, because uh, I mean, that's how, you know, I met you through Michelle. So mm-hmm. I thought you were in Houston. And then I was like, okay. I was like, well, she must have moved up east or she must have moved because <laughs> I'm not, so not even realizing that's where, actually where you were to begin with. Yep. Cincinnati, Ohio. This is where I be. Mm. So, <laughs> so. Tell me, so tell me about your, like your mental health background. Like what, what, um, what's your background in, in like, uh, that area? So I didn't have a background before, Hmm. like as far as professionally, Mm -hmm. um, professionally, I spent over 20 years in frontline management, sales, um, retail, customer service. Like I spent from like age 16 to maybe 30 maybe 31 32 mm-hmm. all of that time customer service retail working my way up to management and once I hit the the management role I stayed in management um like I said so from retail even through like pawn shops and whatnot I was always frontline manager never wanted to go up was offered district positions but I didn't want multiple store responsibilities once right. was enough 
So I just did a lot of that. And then ironically, though, in my personal life, I had mental health challenges and I just never liked how I was handled. Mm-hmm. That opened my eyes to, okay, if I'm outspoken and can advocate for myself and intelligent and people still talking to me crazy and treat me a particular way, I can imagine how people who may not be the things that I am are treated. Right. Um, so, but again, I still was having these experiences while I was in retail management. Mm. So, well, what were some of those experiences? Because I'm curious because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure everybody has gone through like some sort of mental health. We They've gone through have. a crisis yep. in our lives, right? I know I have yep. several yep. times in my life. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's the thing. Like, I, I think that Western culture is so quick to slap a label on people mm-hmm. that go through life, period, wherever challenges based upon how they react to the situation. They're so quick to slap a label, whether the label is they're violent or whether the label is their threat, or whether the label is their schizophrenic or depressive, or, you know, they were so quick to slap a label on it versus trying to figure out what triggered it. Right. Um, I, I, th- that's a whole nother ball game in itself with the misdiagnoses. Um, but my experience was on paper, I'm, you know, I was functional, I looked good, always maintained my own home, own mm-hmm. cars. Um, was always in a management position, um, kept my hygiene up, you know, all the things that people look at and say, oh, you're doing well, looks great on paper. However, internally, the way that I coped and dealt with life's challenges was what the issue was. But because people couldn't see that externally, they looked at the material things. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's okay. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. she's just, she, you know, she just, just give her a minute. She'll bounce back. And so I was fed that narrative so much. That's how I lived my life. Mm. So when I knew something was wrong from the age of, if I'm being honest, I knew from about eight years old, even though I didn't know what depression was at the time, because those types of conversations didn't happen yeah. in households that looked like mine. Yeah. Uh, so even though I didn't know the terms, I knew I was different and what I mean by that is I was always called sensitive. Well, she's too sensitive. She's too sensitive. Da, 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 da. But then at the same time, I was called a bully. Mm. So I guess I was a sensitive bully, you know, at eight years old. And I knew that things affected me differently, like emotionally. I knew I was an easy crier. I knew that when other people around me that I cared about um, got hurt, I felt like I got hurt too. Mm-hmm. Even though physically there was no evidence of it, I just felt that way. So we're talking about, you know, what we know today to be empathic abilities. You know, we, right. we, we're talking about that today, whereas back then, you know, those things weren't talked about. I was just sensitive. I was wrote off as being sensitive. So being conditioned with that, going into my teenage years, I always wanted to please my mom. I grew up in a single parent household. So when I fell short of pleasing her, I took that hard. Yeah. I didn't take it as, oh, it's a common teenage mistake. I took it as, what's wrong with me? Why did I do that? Why didn't I do that? Why don't she understand this? How come she don't see how I'm feeling? Like, I was always a very deep, I don't want to say overthinker, but I was always a very deep thinker when I didn't even have to be. And one day at 16, I think just so many experiences had just accumulated over those eight years. Remember, I said I noticed since eight, I was different. Yeah. So, eight years of experiences accumulated 
I didn't feel like I could talk to my mom because I know now in my 40s that my mom had trauma that she hadn't healed from. But again, those conversations don't happen in my community, you know, period. So again, I'm just going through these motions. And so when things reached their climax with me um, and I just got blessed out by my mom because she found men's phone numbers in my apron pocket. I used to work for Mm -hmm. United Dairy Farmers and um, men was always hitting on me. So, but I didn't want to offend people or make them mad or have them waiting in a parking lot for me. So I would take their numbers and just put them in my apron pocket. However, this particular day, I forgot to empty my pockets before I came home. Mm. So that's how she found the numbers in my apron pocket at 16. I'm, at that moment, I was being truthful. I was still a virgin. Um, I, I knew I just forgot to throw the numbers away, but I'm not going to tell my mom that. <laughs> so right. Right. Then she's like, oh, this has been going on, you know. Um, but again, in that at that moment, I was truthful. I wasn't a virgin. I wasn't dating anybody. Wasn't, I was a virgin. I wasn't dating anybody. I wasn't doing anything at that moment. But the way that she handled the situation, I mean, like, she was so close in my face, cursing me out and calling oh me all types of names, spittles all on my face. It triggered some, something broke. Yeah. And that thing broke because, again, I'm emphasizing the point that at that moment, I was telling the truth. Because after that experience, I said, well, if I'm going to get treated like this and I'm not doing anything, I might as well do the things that you told me that I was doing. And I literally, within that week, started responding because I still had my job you know, started responding, being promiscuous, so on and so forth, because I was so shattered that I was treated that way and that she didn't believe me when I was innocent, that that's how I reconciled at the age of 16. So before I even engaged in those activities, after enduring 30 plus minutes, and mind you, my mother was a religious zealot, (laughs) you know, Mm. so I'm not dealing, I'm not only dealing with my mom talking to me crazy and afraid to wipe her spit off my face, I'm dealing with we was just reading the Bible together and, you know, going to services the day before. Are you talking right. to me this way? Like, so there was a lot of confusion going on at that time. And I had no one to speak to, no outlet. I was raised very sheltered because of the religion. So I, it was, you know, what happens in the house stays in the house and you keep your mouth shut. And right. just internalizing all of that, something broke in me mentally, emotionally, I'll say. And to this day, Fernie, I don't even know where, the idea came from because I didn't see it on a movie. I didn't hear it in a song. I didn't know any kids at school who was doing this, but I grabbed a knife and I cut myself. I began cutting myself. Mm. And that particular day, there was 10 cuts before I feel like I snapped back into reality and realized like, oh shoot, I don't want to die. Wait, what's going on? You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I literally cleaned myself up. I did the deed, cleaned myself up, wrap myself up with some, you know, first aid kit items we had in the house, caught my bus on time to work and went to work like nothing happened. Mm. Like it was almost like an outer body experience. So Mm. I held that experience with me for years. Um, When my mom found out, it was probably a month or two after, it wasn't even a month or two. I take that back because it was, they were, my scars were still in the healing. um, And so they looked extremely gross. So I'm sure as, apparent now her finding that out was like traumatizing in itself but again at that time you know we don't talk about mental health 
What happens in the house stays in the house. We pray stuff away. Da, 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 da. So I never got professional help. It was almost, it was just a, you know, be quiet, keep our business to ourselves type of situation. Mm-hmm. But what that taught me was, okay, I'm going to keep doing this because it gave me some sort of release, but I'm release. not going to do it in mm-hmm. a visible place. Right. And so from the age of 16 to my early 20s, um, on and off, I was harming myself. And I moved out at 18. Like, I don't even think the ink was dry on me turning 18 and I was gone. Um, but I still kept that that practice with me. And I still didn't even get help until uh, my early 20s. Um, I was officially diagnosed with manic depression in 2005, I believe it was. And um, at that time, I was 25. And it was after I found out my dad had passed. And um, because I had a history of cutting, they finally was like, okay, we need to diagnose her with something because every time she comes in here voluntarily on a 72-hour hold, she gets out because I was out talking to doctors. Like, oh, you know, I just, you know, I just went through, I always had an excuse and a reason. And um, I, I really do feel like at that time they had to, put something on paper because I kept coming in and out. So they put something on paper. They gave me medication. Those things didn't work for me. So I stopped. I stopped taking the expensive Zoloft. I stopped seeing the psychiatrist who was wasting my time and his. And I say that because I feel in order to actually help someone, you have to drop your ego. Mm Mm-hmm you feel challenged I'm doing air quotes if you feel challenged by a client because of their intelligence maybe you need to give them someone else who's not threatened because that's how those meetings went Mm -hmm. it it, I guess I wasn't as receptive as as they wanted me to be or maybe I wasn't being as docile or maybe I was using 10 letter words when I should have used three letter words Um, it was It was a horrible experience for me. And that's why I said in the beginning, if I went through that and I was able to open my mouth and advocate for myself, I can imagine how it feels for someone who's not as strong or as confident or as articulate. And then elephant in the room, the psychiatrist didn't look like me. Yeah. So I don't feel you can relate to me. You can relate to my story. You can relate to how my household was. You can't relate to me because you don't look like me culturally, physically. Mm-hmm. You're not open to understanding me. And I think that has a lot to do with why a lot of minorities do not receive or voluntarily go for mental health treatment because of some of the same reasons I just mentioned just now. Well, I was about to I was about to say the same thing because like with mm-hmm. my mom, you know, when she when she had her first breakdown that led to her the beginning of her schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, the family did not want to address it as a mental health condition or right. even acknowledge it that way. Because I mean, Hispanic Catholics, everything you're either possessed by the devil, period. Or, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yep. pretty much the only answer. To that's what it you're is. Possessed by the devil, you're possessed mm-hmm. by Satan. You're possessed by the devil. Mental illness is not a real thing. You just want attention. And mm-hmm. for my mom, I, you know, I was young. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I just knew that something happened to her, and she wasn't my mom anymore. And yes. she was acting erratically, and I did. I could make sense of it. And my family didn't understand it either, but they just assumed it was something to do with the devil. So, mm-hmm. before they took her to a psychiatrist or to a, a mental health facility, they took her to a church to have her have her exercised. Mm. And so that didn't work. <laughs> and and 
once they took her to a doctor, to a, a physician who understood what she was going through, even then, you know, most of, you know, when you think of people in the medical health industry, and this was what, in the, in the early 90s, most of the people who had those degrees and had that specialty, they were white. <laughs> they were either yeah. white or they weren't usually Hispanic or black. They were white. And so um, it was um, it, it was kind of, um, there's this collective sense of being intimidated by e- even just approaching any or, or seeking help in the medical industry because mm-hmm. everybody was white and nobody was of your culture of your background and you didn't feel comfortable it's still to, to this day my family they they rarely just go to a doctor they just deal with stuff their own way because they mm-hmm. feel intimidated or feel like you know some like you're in trouble if you go to a doctor yes, or like I'm intimidated. yes yeah mm-hmm. exactly or what's going to be exactly. the consequences for me right. opening up to you Right. And that, they don't understand mm-hmm. us. They don't understand our perspective or how we approach things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. And that's a real fear. And, and the reason for me sharing this background, because it it uh, give more context as to why I did pursue going into uh, mental health awareness space and creating the brand and whatnot, mm. because in order for people to understand, OK, well, if she has a, you know, over a 20 year history in retail and management. How she know anything about, you know, mental <laughs> health, mental mm-hmm. illness, what to do, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess you could say in a sense, I'm, I'm sharing my testimony to an extent to quantify and qualify why I made the leap because I was in that system. It's well, nothing the, someone told me. It's nothing I read about. Like, this is my real life. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and, and that, in, yeah. that industry, the, the retail industry, it's one of, I mean, I, that's what I did for 10, 10 plus years. That, that's what I did as a mm-hmm. Starbucks store manager. And I know for a fact that if you work in the retail industry, you're going to have some mental health challenges because. Absolutely. People were breaking down left and right all the time in the back room because of mm-hmm. how they were treated by people, how they were mm-hmm. dealing with certain types of pressures. And that's not even including the pressure that I unfortunately had to apply to my, you know, my employees and then what I was under by the company mm-hmm. to perform, perform, perform. It's all about the, the bottom dollar. Ain't no no focus on your mental health or if you're even not if this is all. even right, or even if humans are even designed to function this way, which I don't really believe we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. why all these people don't want to go back into you know all these people who are quitting their jobs in the retail sector they don't want to go back because ten dollars ain't enough to go crazy for to do exactly and ironically the the first main job that i've ever was terminated from was a job that i was at almost 10 years um a customer who uh was known you know, to quote unquote spaz out again. Mm-hmm. I choose my words differently now because I'm more sensitive to it after being a mental health advocate, getting right. certain certifications and credentials. Whereas back then, I know nothing about that space. So right. if somebody comes in talking crazy, we throw around a word they talking crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, if somebody comes in and, and they're mumbling to themselves or, um, you know, they're happy one minute and then they are going off on everybody within their site the next minute. We'll throw around, oh, they bipolar. They talking mm-hmm. crazy. Wait for me. Da-da-da-da. So at that time, that's how I viewed this particular customer. Like, oh, she having a bad day today. And mm-hmm. I was her target that day. And when people are mentally, emotionally unstable, 
and they see physical or material things that you may have that they want, Mm. those two things can combine into jealousy. And when that happens with that chemical imbalance, with that low self-esteem, with that low self-love, once they put you in their crosshairs, they're going to say and do anything and everything they can to take something away from you. Mm -hmm. And I understand that now, but back then I didn't understand that. So me also being driven by ego, when she came in and told me um, she's going to get me fired and I'm just standing there helping other customers, like, what did I do to you? You know? I didn't know that that was a trick bag with my first, middle, last name, social, and date of birth on it. Like, I didn't know that. So, mm-hmm. of course, I jumped in the trick bag. <laughs> and within two weeks of her, you know, us going back and forth and arguing and me standing up for myself and even reaching out to my superior, the district manager, twice and say, mm-hmm. hey, I need some help because she was known. You know, hey, I need some help. This is about to go sideways. I'm trying mm-hmm. to see professional. Again, everything in divine order because he never came and helped me. He never gave me what I would say would be um, correct counsel (laughs) and how to handle the situation. So after my buttons being pushed, I handled it my way. I talked back to her rough like she got she learned that day. (laughs) Like, don't let me be a professional fool you. However, Mm -hmm. it cost me my job two weeks later. Right now. Being able to look back, I am able to understand that she did, because I don't know her state today, but back then she did and was experiencing mental, emotional challenges. And because I wasn't trained to recognize and I was ego driven, I gave what she was looking for and she got what she won't, got me fired. Right. Now looking back, all of those things, and then plus, like, as you mentioned, being a retail, I was working 50 hours, half mandatory. And then over time, um, if I didn't hit my, my credit numbers or my sales numbers or grew Mm -hmm. my store. So plus I had young children at the time. So all of those things going on, different customer uh, personalities, different employee, their issues and personalities, and then whatever I got going on in my life. That is a melting pot of confusion and mental health challenges that don't necessarily have to be diagnosed and treated with a pill. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like sometimes people have to learn how to cope and or remove themselves from situations and a pill doesn't help with that. And I want to be clear for everyone listening. I am not anti-medication. I am pro do what you need to do to get yourself in order. That's healthy. I'm just saying my experiences, again, which later brought me into the arena I'm in now, my experiences with the mental health uh, services industry, how it is, and day-to-day life put me on a path of not taking medication because well, it I didn't think, help me. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I, I 100% agree with you because I went after my, I wish that as children we were taught, I mean, there needs, to, there should be or needs to be. And maybe that's something that you're going to get called into to be some sort of advocate for mental health and support and just training in co- and coping coping mechanisms because kids, especially kids that are in school, have to deal with a number of different situations, whether it's at home or at school with their peers, Mm -hmm. we're not taught how to cope or how to handle that. We're just kind of thrown in and, you know, you're going to, you know, those are other kids, you'll get along and nothing's going to go wrong with that. But, you know, people don't take into account that we come from different backgrounds, different walks of life. Some people were not taught properly how to interact or mix with other people. And so 
to learn those things at school, how to cope, how to handle each other, how to respect each other, how to, you know, interact and engage with each other in a way that reduces the chance for something like what you just experienced that, you know, when you just talking about that at work, which I went through something similar as well. So that's an interesting story, but I wish we would learn these things because I, I know for, for myself, having seen my mom go through that and then having to come out of a, a, a lot of years of bullying in school as an adult, I didn't have confidence. I didn't have self-esteem. I had just kind of had to fake it. And when my, my sister came to live with us because we were kind of we were all raised separately when she came to live with us she was going through depression she was going through she had been trying to commit suicide every week for like every weekend for like a month or two up to that point so she came to live with us because it was getting it was getting out of hand and my aunt who had raised her um apart from us she couldn't handle her anymore she was in like her 80s so she couldn't deal with it so my Mm -hmm. sister um came to stay with us just for like a weekend and my aunt used it as an opportunity to just drop her off and just be done with her. So as soon as my sister got there, she sent all her, all the stuff she was going to give her in a trash bag and just had it delivered to us. Didn't even mm-hmm. want to do and which was crazy because my sister had always been selfish, uh, selfish, spoiled. So she grew up in a, like an, a, a, with a standard of living. And so being coming to live with us in the east side of town in a one bedroom apartment, I, you know, sleep on the living room floor on a mattress that's my bedroom <laughs> my mom right. in her, she was gonna have to share a room with my mom I mean it just completely changed her life and so she it was a hard time for her and she was cutting she was a cutter as well and it was it was difficult for her and during all of that in trying to manage my mom being overly medicated because I didn't realize that I could actually just adjust her medication to get any reaction from her and get her more stable. And then my sister going through what she was going through, just freshly moved in with us. And then I'm working as a telemarketer, as a telemarketer and trying to, you know, pay the bills, manage everything, manage my sister, keep her from killing herself, keep my mom stable, trying to focus Mm -hmm. on making sales each day. I was going nuts. And I was like, Mm -hmm. and I was also trying to do a full-time community college. So I couldn't handle it. And I went to the doctor and they just gave me medication here. We'll put you on medication. And there was like no training or coaching on, you know, being stable and managing all of these diverging uh, challenges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And listening to you share your story, I'm sure with some different, you know, changes and adjustments, many Mm -hmm. people can say, yep, that was my childhood. Yep. That was my teenage experience. Yep. I had to take care of my mom, had to take care of my dad, had to take Mm -hmm. care of my grandparents. And there was no instruction or guidance or no one holding your hand to say, make sure you allocate time for yourself. Self-care is important. Make sure you can delegate, ask for help, say no when necessary. You're a child. It's not your responsibility to care for, you know, there's no one pulling up and saying those things. There's There's no one giving us that instruction. So what do we do? We wing it. We wing every experience we have in life sprinkled in with an example we learned from a close relative or a parent or sometimes TV and entertainment on how to handle a life challenge. That's right. what we do. There's not that class, that math class or that social studies class where we sit down and we read and we learn and we take quizzes and tests. Mm-hmm. No, we're just thrown inside of it. And that's the whole basis of me saying I'm not against medication. However, medication does not fix the foundational problem. The problem could be trauma. The problem could be a child playing an adult, um, excuse me, an adult role in life. 
Uh, mm-hmm. The challenge could be a illness from a close friend or relative or personal illness. Pills cannot teach us how to or how to heal these little pockets of life that pop up and throw us off our game. And sometimes we're not even old enough to develop a game yet. We're just thrown into Mm -hmm. a situation and said, here. So again, that's why I say, if you need medication to cope and balance some chemicals, cool, do that. However, there's still going to be that underlying issue, challenge, trauma, life experience that created the symptoms that your medication is managing that you still got to deal with at some point in order to be holistically healed. And because my experience has taught me medication can't help me with that, I had to create a platform, a space, give myself a voice to say, here, this is my journey. This is what I was given that didn't work. So this is what I found, the tools, the resources, the alternative techniques I've used to help me be who you see today. Because a lot of times when people meet me today, but then they get to know me from my past, they're like, no way. When people meet me today Mm -hmm. and I share with them, whether I'm speaking or whether I'm vending at an event or whether I'm just attending someone else's event and just sharing and just friendly banter, it's like, no, you, that can't be true because today, and so that'd be the prime opportunity for me to say, "Uh uh-uh, no, it's true tea and without Mm -hmm. medication. Yeah. And then that draws them in like, okay, well, what did you do? What, what happened? What did you do? Um, so those types of experiences is what caused me like to make a major pivot in my professional career. So mm-hmm. as I, I spent over 20 years in retail management, customer service, and then I did eight years in the funeral industry. So all during this time, I have all my experiences in the back of my mind. I'm running into people, again, especially in the funeral industry, who's sharing with me their anxiety, their depression stories. But it's more than just, oh, because they're at the funeral home planning a funeral. Like they're telling me stories before their loved one passed. So I'm hearing all these things. I'm making all these connections. And I'm like, okay. And since I'm very spiritual, I don't believe in any random coincidences. You know, I I believe in different messages. I believe in synchronicities. I believe... Mm -hmm you know, my angels and my guides communicating with me through various mediums. So I'm hearing and and feeling and experiencing all these conversations uh, with, with my clients at the funeral home that they're just pouring themselves into me far and beyond the funeral planning. Cause that's what I did for the funeral home. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> was, um, the licensed insurance agent that helps families make their funeral arrangements in advance. And I've always told people planning a funeral is not what takes long. It's not what mm-hmm. makes two, two and a half hours because you can pick out a casket, flowers, your favorite song. Like that's not what takes long. What takes long is there's something about me that these people are talking and pouring into their, to me, their life story when I'm just there to help them pick out a cake, you know, right. in the beginning I respond like, I'm just, do you want a wood casket or a steel casket? Like that's all I'm here for. <laughs> right. But the more I paid attention and the more I did my personal study on my path, I said, okay, this is happening for a reason. Keep in mind, too, I would suppress my personal experiences because of how I was treated from family, from friends and from the mental health professionals that I was seeking help from. It was such a bad experience. I would suppress it, even though I had scars on my body, even though I was fighting certain thoughts of self-harm actively. I would keep that suppressed because I felt like there was not a place I could go to and get the type of help 
that I knew that I needed and a pill couldn't do that. Right. So all these things were mixing and meshing around. And so I started praying and I said, okay, why do you keep letting people tell me all their business? <laughs> like why? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's reminding me of my business and that's not the business I'm in. So at some point, um, you know, when you ignore so long, you get smacked in the face with reality. And so that happened to me because there were some things going on in my personal life um, as far as with my children and their parents. And um, it, it was just a lot of things going on. And so life had to knock me completely down. You know how people say, oh, I had to hit rock bottom. And they're usually talking about like substance abuse or alcohol or mm-hmm. uh, marriage or something like that. That happened to me as far as being a parent um, and as a woman. <clears throat> so when life knocked me completely down in 2012, well, end of 2011, beginning of 2012, I was forced to surrender. And a lot of times people think surrender means give away all of your free will, do whatever you're told to do by whomever, have no say, blah, blah, blah. For me, surrender meant letting go of my ego as much as possible and saying, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. So spirit guide me because I'm tired of hurting. I don't want to go back to harming myself. That's not me. I don't want to adapt for the rest of my life, adopt for the rest of my life, this term manic depression, because I'm not going to be labeled my whole life. I'm not going to be on medication my whole life. Like I want to fix me, show me what to do to fix me. I'm tired of fighting everybody. I'm tired of fighting myself. Help me. And the same when the student is ready, the teacher will come. That's exactly what happened to me at that after I surrendered. Um, I surrendered in January of 2012. I was just tired of everything, tired of fighting, not suicidal. So I want to be very clear with the listeners. You can be tired of who you are without being tired of existing. Mm-hmm. That's where I was at. I, I never wanted to die. I just knew something in me had to change and I didn't have a system around me to help me change. So <laughs> I start praying mm-hmm. and I didn't pray to the, um, you know, for the religion that I was raised in because I tried that and that didn't work for me as an adult. <clears throat> and I didn't know too much about other religions because I was so raised strict in the religion I was raised in. So I began to study any and every religion I found a name about Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Catholicism, um, the Islamic faith. Um, I even looked up the Kabbalah. Like I researched any and everything that quote unquote was religious because I wanted to know being raised Jehovah's witness, why all these other religions weren't any good. Right. You want to know what I found out? I didn't find out what I was taught being raised Jehovah's witness. I didn't find out. Of course not. You never are. We never are. (laughs) We find that out. I found out, true tea, nobody taught me this. I found out through going back and forth to the library, reading books and renting the little PBS special because back then, you know, DVDs was popping. We didn't have all these devices like we have now. (laughs) Right. Found out on my own, it was like the heavens opened up that every single religion has the same theme. They just word it differently. And that theme is, Love thy neighbor as themselves. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Everything mm-hmm. else is extra sprinkled in man-made. Mm-hmm. Everything else. It's the rules, the tenets, how you dress, what you don't dress, what you don't eat, what are you supposed Everything else is sprinkled in man-made. <clears throat> but the, the recurring theme, just worded different, 
is constant in every religion. So that made me question some more and say, if every religion has this same core philosophy, but all these other rules and regulations are padded around it, why everybody fighting so much? If y'all are going for the same theme, the same treatment of other, if y'all going for that, who said it was okay to add all these extra spices to make it divisive? Right. That alone, honestly, made me wash my hands of every religion. At the point that I made that decision for me, I feel and believe that the true spiritual guidance was opened up for me. And what I mean is this. I learned so much from self-study of just learning about me as a person, finding out my purpose, learning about nature, learning about all the things because I am a black woman. So learning about all the things my ancestors did, Mm -hmm. but also learning about what other quote unquote people who were at peace do. So that means I took pieces from Buddha. That means I took pieces from Hinduism. That means I took pieces from Christianity. I mean, there are just so many things that I found that resonated with me and made me feel good and allowed me to learn how to forgive myself and that I was worthy of forgiveness. And that I also had the ability to heal from my trauma by doing soul healing, soul cleansing work again. And that Zoloft they gave me could not help me with that journey. Mm. So after almost 10 years of living my life that way, checking my ego, ding, 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 (laughs) listening, (laughs) you know, I learned too that I lacked self-love. Now on paper, you couldn't tell me that. You couldn't come to me and say back in the day, Coach V, you know, you, you don't love yourself. Yeah, I got my hair done, my nails done, my vehicles was clean, my house was clean, my kids look good. Like you can't tell me I love myself. Well, nah, that's a, and that's a surface level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like a and that's like a human. Uh, that's like a, a human failing across the board because the idea so, is you know you base yourself on what you either have or achieved. And absolutely. If you're a privileged class then what you achieved is typically what you're, dra- you're graded on. If, if you're yeah. from a class of people who are at the bottom, which, this, which is my background as well, then what you have is, mm-hmm. is, is your worth and value. And if you have nothing, you know, and so you try to compensate. And so you try to compensate by, oh, I'll make myself look pretty or more attractive or I'm yeah. going to have this little yeah. cute little bag or this brand, whatever. Yes. And, and, and we think that's self-love. So, you know, the idea of loving yourself is this idea based in what you have or what you achieve, not mm-hmm. who you are genuinely, authentically beneath mm-hmm. the layers of conditioned experience. Yes. And that's where I realized I had the game all twisted, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I was only practicing and repeating <clears throat> what I knew from my environment. Right. right? And a lot mm-hmm. of us are doing that. So after I discovered and did my work and cried and, cut folks off and stop believing certain things and lies about myself and what I was told in good faith because my mom and others did you know what they thought was correct that's when life really truly began to be enjoyable now let's be clear that doesn't mean everything was rainbow and sunshines and all my problems went away and I never had money challenges and that doesn't mean that because there were still some tests I had to endure to really build my character 
and to who I am today, that the only difference in those situations was how I responded to them because I'd done my work. And mixing all those things together gave me an epiphany in the middle of 2012 that, hold on, if I'm just now being taught this in my 30s, how many more people are either just now being taught or haven't even came close to being taught these ideas, beliefs, and concepts, and they're just like walking like zombies through life experiences, just like Mm -hmm. I was prior to me having my awakening. That's what really catapulted me into saying, okay, I want to help other people. I want to provide a series of services that help other people get out of the rat race mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Because I firmly believe once you fix and align those three things, your financial, your physical, your social, all those other things that people usually judge by that we've already covered, they fall in line. Right. But you got to get that head together, right? right? So that's originally when I began saying, okay, I want to start. Now, mind you, I was still at the funeral home at the time. So at this time, it was just, oh, an idea of something I want to do. It, I really didn't take it seriously. Um, I just knew that, okay, I experienced all this stuff in life and came out of it, you know, not too scathed. <laughs> I still got war wounds and scars and receipts, but I'm still standing. I'm still here. I'm still coherent. I have to help other people. And so, like I said, I didn't take it seriously, though, because I still had a career at the funeral home. And um, I think what happened on, I don't say think, I know what happened. Honestly, I drugged my feet for so long because I had that safety and security of a secular job Mm -hmm. that circumstances shifted where I no longer had that safety and security. And a lot of people experienced that when, when the pandemic hit. Right. So even from 2012 to 2019, I was still writing um, funeral agreements and working funeral services. And I was doing a little here and there to dabble, doing a little speaking engagements, doing this, that, and the third, making appearances. Mm -hmm. But I knew I still wasn't taking myself as seriously as I could because why? I had this job. I had this great job helping people and helping people heal and visiting them after their funeral for the aftercare program. Like I'm doing all these amazing things to help people. And I think honestly, it just got to a point where spirit said, okay, you are really not listening. <laughs> what I need you to do. You're not listening. I wouldn't let you slow walk this for long enough. And so I actually stepped down June of 2019 from the funeral home to really pour in and pursue and build my service-based business and helping people. And then what happened six months later, the right. entire world got shut down because mm-hmm. of the being right. entire world. So that not only put me, I thought at a standstill that put the entire world at a standstill where everybody was forced to sit down and to, be more present and to spend time with families. And then people started to discover, I really like this person. Or they started to discover, I really don't take care of myself. So many things because we were all forced to sit down. Mm. And that this past year of being forced to sit down, all the work I did while I was still working in corporate America, like trademarking my brand, um, taking certain classes with NAMI to get certified in certain types of teachings, um, taking 
And again, these are the, these are the slow walking things that I did while I was still working, right. um, getting a certification with the state of Ohio um, as a peer recovery coach in addictions and, and mental um, mental health. And it's, it's so funny because in order to get the dual certifications, you have to have lived experience with um, both um, alcohol, uh, substance abuse or mental health challenges. And my lived experience is with the mental health challenges. However, I believe that because of my um, comprehension, because of my demonstration of certain um, treatments and, and policies and, and understanding when a person needs to be referred to a licensed professional and um, just the advice and feedback given, I think I was granted that dual um, certification because they're not too far removed. You know, a lot of times when people self-medicate, or they abuse a substance, it is self-medication for a mental health challenge. Right. It's a exactly. So that dual diagnosis does run hand in hand. So when I obtained that certification, I was excited about that. Um, but then, like I said, I did all these things. Like I said, I trademarked my brand, took these classes, passed these exams, but I still was working for corporate America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was forced to sit down for real, like everybody else, I was forced to come to realization, you've done all this footwork and did the studying and attended these courses and these seminars to have these pieces of paper. Now what you're going to do with them? Because this is your passion. This mm-hmm. is what you do. And when you speak to people, when you go to events, when you participate in events, when you do take one-on-one coaching clients, you resonate with people, but you keep playing. So when you're going to stop playing. Right. So, um, I released my first book. January of 2020, again, not knowing the world was going to be shut down, (laughs) January of 2020, where I share the eight steps that I used uh, 10 years ago to beat my symptoms of manic depression. Released the book, um, didn't get to do any book tours or anything like that. Why? Because COVID hit. Right, right. But I was able to share my book with, I guess I want to say the people that I needed to share it with at the time, um, got great feedback with it, great reviews with it. However, I know that I did not reach as many people as I could have, um, had the world not been grounded. So I'm working on a re-release with just more, um, more information in it, more of my alternative lifestyle living, because I didn't put that much of that in the book. I just made it a quick read. Um, I know personally, I don't enjoy reading books where I got to get through a hundred pages of you rambling and selling to me before I get to the meat of why I bought the book. Right. So, <laughs> I made my book 68 pages. Yes, there's a little short intro to, to qualify why I wrote the book. And then boom, straight to the eight steps. However, when COVID hit and you turn on the news or you pull up your social media and you see more people than ever are now speaking up and speaking out about their depression, about anxiety. And and sometimes you can call it situational because there's people who quote unquote may not have had a mental health challenge prior to COVID that now everybody's getting teleconferencing or going to therapists or, or in support groups or seeking some site, some sort of resource or solace for experiencing a mental health challenge that may have just been brought to the light because of COVID. Well, I think, I think that last year for sure, and from just from my experience, you know, mental health, even though I come from a life where that was a major theme and player, but I, I haven't even personally in my own life with myself, I didn't really 
fixate on my own mental health Mm -hmm. or even just the mental health of my friends and family, regardless, Mm -hmm. you know, of the circumstances, because that has not been an area that has really called a lot of attention to me past the experiences of having, you know, having gone gone through that with my mom and my sister. So last year, and I saw so many of my friends and people that I knew who either were very strong, really struggle, or people mm-hmm. who walked around thinking that they were, you know, they were put together and you know, going off and telling everybody how to live their lives suddenly go crazy. And mm-hmm. when I mean crazy, mm-hmm. meaning they just were not, they were not aligning with what they were used to aligning with in their own way. And yes. so they just were all over the place. And I saw it over and over and over again. And to the point where I almost became affected by the fact that there were so many people in mental crisis last year. Mm-hmm. And, and my way, I think, of coping with things, um, because having moved here from Houston, um, it already put a lot of distance between me and the world because I live mm-hmm. in an area that is not you know, easy to reach. And, and the only way to really connect with people is through the wire. So for me, I already had put a buffer in place to help me cope more with the amount of people I was having to connect with on a regular basis and physical space was was a way for me to do that but once COVID hit and everything was on the wire and just seeing how many people were struggling my way I think of of coping with things was just to retract and remove myself a bit from people because it was overwhelming and to the point where I was like ah like you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm blessed that I'm doing well and I'm in a place where I'm stable and I'm in a place that's beautiful for me and I can enjoy this. And my partner and I got along fine. So we weren't killing each other in 2020. Right. <laughs> right? And so that was important. Like I told him, I said, look, if we got through 2020 and we didn't barely even skip a beat, we're good. I think we can go exactly. on for a long time. That's the marker. Yes. Yeah. That's the marker. <laughs> yeah. And, and I always tell people, look, if you want to know you could, your marriage will survive, either build a deck together, which we did right before we moved here. And that, you know, we were on the verge of just like, that's it. This deck just done, did us in. Um, either build a deck together or live together, you know, and see each other every day for a while. And we were able to do that. So I was like, okay, we're good. We're good. But, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. but I had to remove myself. So I, in a way, I kind of just, I wouldn't say dropped my relationships. I just wasn't as regularly engaging with people as I was used to before 2020. And to some extent, I prefer it because it helps me to maintain my center. And in some ways, I kind of gave myself a hard time about it because, you know, I've got people, I got a list of to do's and on my list of to do's, it's like, you know, call this person, catch up with them, catch up with them. And I, I keep my, mm-hmm. my bubble small. So it's only just like, you know, a select group of people. But when I wasn't reaching out to them, when I wasn't calling them, when I wasn't keeping up with some of these people that I really do think highly of and care so much about, I felt I almost gave myself guilt because I didn't want to engage. I just did not want to engage with anyone other than when I was doing it for work or for lives. And I don't even know if that's okay. I mean, I don't know. What do you, I mean, just from your experience, you know, what, what, what kind of coping mechanism is that? Cause I have no idea why. I, you know. mm-hmm. So first and foremost, kudos to you and kudos to anyone listening who is tuned in enough to themselves to be able to one, identify, and then two, to take action and step away when they feel like it's too much. Yeah. Because more often than not, especially in Western culture, we are told to push through, show up, grin and bear it, fake it till you make it, 
Don't be selfish. Be there for other people. And those are cool ideas. But in reality, you're not showing yourself any type of love or form of self-care when you do that. Right. You're not being as, as effective and as supportive and as present as you can be like when you take care of yourself first. And if that was a running theme in Western culture, there would be zero guilt when people begin to walk that journey. If the recurring theme from young for every family was disengage when you need to, set aside self-care, do what's best for you, do regular emotional mental check-ins with yourself, we would not feel so different, distant, or guilty when we make those decisions to protect our peace, right? Right, right? So that narrative has to begin to change. And sometimes, as I put on my book, you gotta change the people around you. And what that means is physically change the people around you who do not share the same values that you have. Now that doesn't mean the door is closed forever on those people who aren't on the same page as you. You still drop little nuggets. You still post little things that they may see on their feet one day that may resonate. You still live by example. But until they can come and be in alignment with your best self or support the things that you do or don't do to keep your peace of mind, we have to love them from a distance. Right. And sometimes those people never come around and that's on them and not you. We have to get out of the practice, learned behavior of feeling bad for taking care of self first. We have to get out of that. There's even a saying in marriages, what it say, marriages and families, that if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy or something like that. I think so, yeah. But that, yeah. that title can be interchangeable in any type of relationship or situation. We just have to begin to take a stand and say, hold on, pause. <laughs> mm. Let me check in with myself. And that's called mindfulness, right? Yeah. I said tuned in, tapped in, turned on, right? But mindfulness is being present in the moment to check in with yourself and to see and say, okay, how am I feeling? What do I think about this? Is this loving and kind that I'm thinking about myself? Because once we have a regular routine of checking in with ourselves, we're more able to check in with other people out of love, not right. out of ego, not out of being nosy and in a business, not knowing the tea, but genuinely out of love and concern because we treat ourselves that way first. So I am a huge fan of disengaging. So that's why I say first and foremost, kudos to you and kudos to who anyone's listening that's able to say, hold on, I need a break. I need a break. What would you call that? Would you call that, I guess, like a healthy form of disengaging or like healthy mental disengagement or? I, I definitely would. That is one of the alternative ways, alternative techniques, whatever you want, alternative treatments, whatever you want to call it that people can definitely use in a healthy way to protect their mental health. And that's why, again, why I said earlier, I'm not against medication. I just know that when people are taught non-medicinal ways on how to deal and cope with life situations, then what's the pill for? Right. And then the, another part of disengagement is you don't owe nobody, not near explanation when you resurface. Right. Because the people... <laughs> who really know, love, and support your journey, they're going to check their ego. And if you tell them, you tell them. If you don't, you don't. However, they're still going to be there in a capacity of being supportive and loving and caring, whether right. you need them to be a listening ear or not. The first obstacle, though, is 
learning not to feel guilty for disengaging. Because if you feel that way and that person that you're feeling guilty about or towards or you share that with them, if they say anything other than, no, Fernie, you don't need to explain to me. I understand because I disengage too. Then they don't need to be in your camp. Right. If they're trying to check you or hold you accountable because you disappeared or you ain't a good friend or you ain't a good brother or how could you do this? I needed you. Okay, hold on, pause, because I needed to be here for myself first. I'm no good to you if I don't take care of me first. And because mm. people haven't learned that, that's why they take offense. And it's our job to let them know to an extent, this is my path. I don't have no guilt about feeling a, B, C, D, and E are doing this because I have to take care of me. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to do the same for yourself. Mm-hmm. But when ego is in that, that's when people, oh, they ain't talking to me. I ain't talking to them. They ain't check on me. I ain't checking on them. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that ego. So we mm-hmm. have to learn to heal and evolve past that point of ego. And when we talk about mental health on a general spectrum, we're talking about how you view yourself, how you view others, and how you view the world at large. If you have a healthy level or a good level of mental health, then you're viewing all three of those things out of the lenses of love, concern, compassion, and self-care. Just like with physical health, because people, for some reason, understand um, these analogies quicker, and then they relate them to mental health. If I'm in good physical health, my lens, when I look at the world and other people around me, is going to be from a perspective of having good physical health. So that means is I may say something like the majority of people in my space are healthy, whatever I determine that to be versus not. If I have poor physical health, then I'm going to look at everybody else as being in my, in my boat, whatever that means, whether I call them fat, whether I call them too skinny, they look like they need to eat a sandwich Whether I say, oh, they must be on that stuff because I have a negative perception of myself. I'm looking through negative lenses at everything else. And it works the same way mentally. If I have a healthy mental state, then I look at myself in a positive way. I look at others in a positive way and I view the world. So, you know, the old saying is, oh, you're looking at the world through rose colored glasses. I Mm -hmm. am. I am. (laughs) and don't take them from me I am because there's so much negative energy over us so that means that every little bit of person that's putting out that positive energy we need to unite because we're overcoming so much negativity directly and indirectly so I advocate for disengaging because sometimes it does get overwhelming sometimes it gets to be too much the other side of that though Fernie is this If a person has to disengage because there's so much coming across their feet that's affecting them negatively, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, a non-medicinal way of also dealing with that is to clean up your feet. Meaning, Mm. maybe you're connected with people who at one point, two years ago, it was funny to you when they shared certain videos or shared certain jokes or post certain things. But now that you're evolving and growing and healing, It doesn't resonate with you today. So disconnect from them. That doesn't mean you hate them. That doesn't mean you won't see them at the barbecue this weekend. That just means we're on different paths when it comes to -to day-to-day entertainment, information, uh, posts, news feeds, so on and so forth. That's that's all that means. So in order to protect you, just we have this thing of 
just because we know somebody in real life, we got to be with them in virtual life everywhere. We right. got to follow them on LinkedIn and Facebook, and social media and Snapchat and, and Twitter and whatever else and whatever else, Twitch, whatever else I'm missing. Why do we got to follow people in all those arenas? Right. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> why do we feel the need and obligation to do that? So those are some things and ways that we can check in with ourselves and say, OK, if I feel regularly that I have to disengage from social media or from whatever it is. Now let me dig deeper and take accountability for what I'm following, what I'm looking at, what I'm researching, or what's popping up in my feed because of who I'm connected with. Right. Well, I think it's also, okay. Mm-hmm. And well, and, and and it's it's been it's been a an interesting transition because I mean I was already disengaging when I first moved, mm-hmm. and I was already getting more selective with who I was going to have in my inner circles. Mm -hmm. And then as time progressed, and then of course COVID happened, I noticed that I was still too accommodating to energies or people or mindsets that really were not supportive or in alignment with my path and what I choose, Mm -hmm. intentionally choose for my experience here. And even then, I mean, people may have seen you know, me this last year, and I've been very, very specific in expressing myself in some instances in ways where people would say, well, he's not being very professional in the way he's responding to that, or he's going off on someone for this or that. And I'm like, well, yeah, no, I'm not this like <laughs> loose cannon who's running around, like mm-hmm. just spouting off and going off of going off on everyone I meet when you piss me off. I'm not, I've never actually been that kind of person. I've always mm-hmm. been overly controlled. What this past year has allowed me and given me permission to be is a more authentic and and respectful version of myself to myself in how I put myself out there and how I respond to things. And so people following me or people, you know, coming in my my orbit, coming coming to me or coming into my space of influence in a way that does not reflect or align with who I choose to be and what I choose to put out into this world. I made it very clear, like, I have no space for you. I have no space for you. I have no tolerance. And it's not, you know, I don't think you're an evil person. I just don't have the energy or the space or the tolerance level for you in my life. And I already have an inner circle that's small. And then my outer circle has to be carefully selected. So it's, uh, it's, it, it has to, and, and some people may say, well, you're, you know, they may not like me now. They may have issues with me. I know my family has had to transition because I've, I've been doing this for several years now where I've been disengaging and disengaging and disengaging where I've been very selective in the way that I react or respond with family. And now I think they're, they're fine with it. It's taken, you know, it's taken them a few years, but now they get it. Bernie, he's, you know, he's not going to respond or react or interact with us unless he really is choosing to, but he loves us. And every time we get, he comes around, it's not like he's coming around to start shit or to, to stir things up. He's coming around intentionally. And honestly, my experiences with my family my selected experiences with my family over the last two or three years have been more meaningful to me and I know to them as well than they ever were when I was around them 24 seven years ago. So mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I want to double down on something you said. I want to make sure the people listening caught it. Intentional choice. Mm-hmm. Those two words together are so powerful because we're not taught to be intentional. We're taught Mm -hmm. to accommodate other people, even 
if we don't feel like it, even if we got to get up in the morning, even if our feet hurt, we are taught in professional and personal settings to accommodate the other person. No wonder we lack self-love. No wonder we don't practice self-care. No wonder we get burnt out. No wonder we have mental health challenges. Right. Because we're not taught to look at what's the best practice for ourselves at that moment. So what that means is today on Tuesday, it might be in my best practice to intentionally choose to eat this double cheeseburger today. <laughs> it, it might be. That right. just might be what I'm feeling. Right. I, I ain't had a burger in six months. But let's say tomorrow morning, it's, it's not being too kind to my innards. <laughs> it's not being too kind. <laughs> right. So now that means I have the power that's not given by anybody else. So I don't need permission. I have the power to intentionally choose to no longer eat the eat double cheeseburgers. Right. So, mm-hmm. but when my friend who was with me the day before says, girl, you being fake, you just had a burger the other day and you enjoyed it. Why now <laughs> right. today? Da, 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 right. Da, da, da. right. That's right. I did. But since I also have free will and the ability <laughs> to change my mind, right. Right. that thing no longer serves me. Now, I know it may seem uh, uh, comical to folks listening because I used a food item, but I did that because I want to communicate how simple of a concept it is to intentionally choose to pivot and do something different than you did the day before, 20 minutes ago, five minutes ago, five years ago, because it no longer serves you. And you don't owe an explanation to anyone. And for those people who are ego driven, like the friend in my example, checking me, telling me I was fake and you just ate a burger and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) I own that. I said, yes, I did. However, today I'm intentionally choosing not to mess with that. Right. I don't have to go into how it turned me upside down and I was on the toilet for five. I don't have to go into (laughs) that if I don't choose. Mm-hmm. My answer enough of me that I changed my mind, that's enough answer. And if you yeah. truly love me and respect my path and I'm not doing anything to harm myself or others, then that answer should be sufficient for you. Without you saying I'm being fake, without you saying I'm being divisive or funny acting or horrible or brand new or you didn't change, I did change. Why are you proud of being the same for the past 20 years? The, Those the are right, the types of conversations we have to start having. Well, the right, just that simple thing you said, like the right to change your mind is mm-hmm. like that. That is one of the one of the golden nuggets that I think I've learned mm-hmm. over the last few years. The mm-hmm. idea that we have the right to change our minds. We we can agree on something and we can work towards whatever or you know fulfill that to the best of our abilities. Mm-hmm. But if you decide to change your mind, or if you decide that it's it's necessary to change your mind it is okay as long as you're not you know like as long as you don't have a habit or a history of 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 switching sides constantly then because ain't nobody can trust you at that point but if 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 that's not what this is about you know if i let's say invest in a relationship or in a friendship or in a professional service and it is not panning out the way that was expected or agreed to, then I have the right to pull back. And I think that's caught people off guard because I have changed my mind and said, no, sorry, you didn't fulfill the agreement we had. 
and I'm mm-hmm. I'm removing myself from the situation because it's a waste of my time. And mm-hmm. some people don't get that. And some people get really ruffled. Like, what do you say? Like, I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy. I'm like, I've never said anything about your worth or worthiness. I'm just telling you this no longer works for me and I have to do what's best for myself. Mm-hmm. And that's why that, that type of response from the other party, oh, what, I'm not worth it? <clears throat> that's an indicator of healing that needs to be done. There's some sort of trauma there or some sort of childhood experience or adult experience where someone convinced them that if someone separates from you, leaves you, pivots, make another choice, that translates to you're not good enough, you're not worthy, who you think you are, you're disgusting, get out my face. When it simply could have been they wanted to do the event on Saturday, you wanted to do it on Thursday, Because you got five events to do on Saturday. But because you didn't break down all your business to them and make it make sense for them, they're going to go with what they're comfortable with, which is, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I screwed up. And it could be something as simple as a conflict in schedule. And I know I'm being so extra with the examples, but I just really want to hone it in that we are free day to day to make different choices that serve us. And because we are constantly working on self-improvement and personal growth and healing, those changes may look dramatically different from time to time. However, if it fits right and it feels right in our innards and our heart and in our gut and we can sleep at night and we haven't harmed ourselves or harmed others, we have to have the confidence enough to rest in that feeling good and feeling right for us at that moment. Right. Because it might change. So we got to enjoy it while it feels good. Mm-hmm. While still setting the example to those that we care about that, hey, this is the path that I'm walking. I'll be happy to bring you along, show you, give you some cliff notes when you're ready. However, right now, this this is what's best for me. And the best thing you could do if you truly love, care about me and understand is to support what I'm doing. This is not a reflection on you. This is something that I need to do. So don't internalize it. Why did you hear me say this? Your ears heard me say this, but mentally and emotionally, you translated it into this. Well, okay, you know what? Right now isn't a good time to speak with you about this. So I'm going to let you rest in that. I'm going to rest in this over here. And then when we confidently do that, we continue to practice on not feeling guilty or not feeling like internalizing the accusations they threw at us. For example, we being brand new or we don't care. All those things that are meant to trigger us is the universe testing us to make sure that we are serious about walking the path that we said we're walking. Because people test us for GP, whether it's intentional or not. If I tell you I ain't eating this cheeseburger no more and you invite me over to dinner and you make cheeseburgers, why? <laughs> like, why? When I clearly, mm-hmm. oh, girl, I'm just trying to see if you were serious. That's not your play. <laughs> <laughs> like, why? You feel me? So it's like we, we, we have to <laughs> stand our ground and make people understand either you're going to stay present in my space and meet me here where I'm at, or I'm gonna have to love you from a distance and vice versa. We have to be in the position to be on a receiving end of that as well. Cause we may no longer be somebody's cup of tea. 
Right. And we can't internalize that either. These are all great examples of how people move, maneuver, speak, and behave when they practice things that support their mental health. And that's something that is one of the basis of my brand, Mental Health is Sexy, is changing the narrative around mental health. And the reason that's the first objective of my brand is because in certain communities that look like you and I, we don't talk about mental nothing, mental illness, mental health, (laughs) mental challenges. We don't talk about mental nothing. However, if we begin to change that conversation and make it cool or definition of sexy, make it something alluring, attractive and desirable, maybe those conversations can be more regular without being so taboo and divisive.